0: G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and thanks for tuning in. Now, today on the show, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd on the geopolitical consequences of the pandemic. He predicts the coming post-COVID anarchy. Plus, Iraq. Believe it or not, its future looks brighter today than it has at any point in the past decade. Stay with us for my chat with Linda Robinson from the RAND Corporation. She'll tell us why we should not give up on Baghdad's fragile democracy. Well, as coronavirus continues to take a toll on the health of nations around the world, one thing has become clear. The winners and losers are not who we might have expected a year ago. The virus has taken an uneven and unpredictable course through the world, defying our usual assumptions about power and resilience. Some small, poor countries, they've been left relatively unscathed, while powerful, prosperous nations, they've been ravaged. So what does this mean for global order and for the strategic rivalry between China and the United States? Will everything change or is the virus merely accelerating trends that were already in place? Former Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, is the president of the Asia Society Policy Institute in New York. He's written an essay in the most recent issue of Foreign Affairs magazine in New York. It's called The Coming Post-COVID Anarchy. And he joins me now from Queensland's Sunshine Coast. Kevin Rudd, welcome back to Between the Lines.
1: Good to be with you on Between the Lines.
0: (laughs) Now, your recent essay is titled The Coming Post-COVID Anarchy. Anarchy. Why anarchy?
1: Well, Tom, you're a good realist uh, scholar of international relations. You would know that realists uh, assume that anarchy is, in fact, the natural state uh, of the uh, uh, international society of states. Remember, it was Headley. Uh, bull who um, wrote about this quite a long time ago.
0: An Australian that, realist.
1: Uh, an Australian realist. And within the realist argument, it's that order actually represents the exception rather than the rule. Um, so why do I argue this? Uh, I argue it because the current order, as we've known it since '45, is underpinned by and large by US geopolitical power and geoeconomic power. Secondly, uh, that's become challenged, not least by China. Uh, Thirdly, the COVID crisis has turbocharged uh, the hit on American real and perceived power. But there's a fourth factor as well, which is the impact which the COVID crisis has on China's own power, not least the damage to its economy, the flow-through effect to its ability to spend unlimited amounts of money on its military and on the Belt and Road Initiative, for example. But more importantly, international perceptions of China both in the developed and the developing world. So where do we end up? We end up not with um, the same old order as in the past, but a slow and steady drift towards a more anarchic order where both China and the US are damaged and the institutions of global governance, whether it's the UN, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the G20, etc become increasingly the terrain for geopolitical battle between these two wounded powers
0: okay so neither country is the victor here but some analysts say that uh, china's heavy-handed approach you know (laughs) it's draconian lockdowns mass surveillance that's been a political win for xi jinping and and that strengthened the central authority of the communist regime how would you respond to them
1: well let's look at um, that argument Uh, within china itself there's been a huge hit On the economy. Um, And as a result of that, China will have its worst growth numbers in 2020 that it's had in over half a century since the end of the Cultural Revolution, almost. Um, That is huge. It undermines uh, Xi Jinping's China dream, uh, which was uh, one pillar of which was for China to quadruple its GDP dp by 2020 measured against 2000 levels this single year of itself of economic non-performance blows a hole amidships in that and then secondly on top of that tom you've got the problem uh, which arises in terms of internal political debates within china itself and i think some growing levels of resistance to xi jinping's own leadership and finally as i mentioned before uh, the blowback around the world in terms of the economic damage Uh, to economies both developed and uh, developing, causing a big question mark to arise in terms of whether China has in fact been the rest of the world's best friend uh, because Mm. of the outbreak of this virus. So these factors, I think, qualify the overall argument you hear from some that China's authoritarian model in managing the crisis domestically translates into a geopolitical win for China internationally. I don't think that necessarily holds.
0: What conversations do you think, Kevin, are are going on right now in Beijing over China's place in the world? I mean, is there a division over this so-called wolf warrior? This is the hardline diplomacy we often hear about, a division between that wolf warrior diplomacy versus, say, China's desire to promote soft power?
1: You know, Chinese politics in some respects is not dissimilar to elements of politics we find in other countries, that is, you find nationalists and internationalists, you find uh, localists and globalists, you find ideologues versus, as it were, reformers and pragmatists. And so the Chinese political system, while it's uh, controlled by Xi Jinping's leadership, still has all these tensions and personalities within it. So the debates now, I think, are of uh, a twofold nature. How did we allow this to happen in the first place? What failed in terms of the processes and systems China put in place after the SARS crisis of 2003 to prevent a pandemic or an epidemic, as it was then, from happening again? The second debate is, how the hell do we get the economy back together again, given that China is an economy where 40% of um, GDP comes from the traded sector of the economy? And international trade is being blown to bits by this crisis. And the other debate, uh, again, between nationalists and internationalists is the one you've just touched on, uh, Tom, which is China's wolf warrior diplomats out there Mm. launching attacks against any critique of China's performance, uh, on the one hand, to defend the party's legitimacy, and on the other hand, older, more seasoned diplomats saying, This isn't actually contributing much to the improvement of China's global image. Those are the discussions and debates underway at the moment.
0: Well, talking about this wolf-warrior diplomacy, what do you make of China's recent boycotts or threats of boycotts of Australian exports, barley, beef? What's going on there?
1: Well, as I've said um, uh, in other recent interviews since those public statements by the Chinese ambassador to Australia... It's unacceptable, in my view, for any ambassador or accredited to any country to issue public threats against their host country. Uh, in 35 years or more of dealing with the Australia-China relationship, I don't recall previous Chinese ambassadors ever having done that, nor do I recall mm. any Australian diplomat ever having done that, irrespective of the crisis of the day, whether it was Tiananmen or the things that I went through when I was in office, etc. So I think as a matter of, shall we say, diplomatic practice, Uh, What occurred then was regrettable, as has been some of the hardline commentary which has emanated from the Chinese nationalist media. Uh, The bottom line is, um, however, uh, the Chinese nationalists have seen um, the effectiveness uh, of uh, some of these sorts of measures when applied to various European countries in the past. Uh, The sorts of economic leverage which China applied to Norway after Norway through the Nobel Prize Committee... Uh, mm-hmm. awarded the Nobel Peace Prize to a famous Chinese dissident. Um, and they've also seen how those um, economic leverage points have worked with various of the other Europeans. So this is not alien to the Chinese playbook. My argument about China's Australia's management of uh, the relationship at present is that if the Australian government's of the view, and a view I in general support, that there needs to be an independent international inquiry as to the origins of the virus, transmission of the virus, notifications uh, to the uh, WHO and through them to the world community, etc. Uh, then if you're going to put that forward as an Australian government, uh, then do some work on it first, get a few other governments to come along mm. with you and advance it through the multilateral machinery which exists rather than just blow it out as a thought bubble. Um, That's the way in which you do real things in the international community, rather than I fear sometimes pitching a diplomatic initiative primarily for domestic political leverage in Australia. itself. Of course,
0: what complicates matters further is President Trump's theory that the virus was leaked from a lab in Wuhan and raises the question, why would China agree to an inquiry without losing face? This is Between the Lines on ABC Radio National. The familiar voice you're hearing is former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. He's now President of the Asia Society Policy Institute in New York. We've been talking about his article in the current issue of Foreign Affairs magazine, um, Kevin, we were talking about China and how it's uh, paid a price as a result of this coronavirus. Let's turn to the United States. Um, how badly damaged is the US in your judgment? I mean, will it recover reasonably quickly uh, with a change of administration in November? Or does the damage go deep, perhaps too deep for recovery?
1: There has been deep damage. Politically, the um, the, the house is a divided house within the United States, Those of us who have followed US politics over many years have rarely seen it uh, this divisive. And that actually is a real factor in terms of constructing a post-presidential election national consensus on how America engages the world in the future. American politics has become so binary, including on uh, America's uh, own future worldview. On the economic damage, it's huge. This is the biggest hit on the US economy, at least since 1946, and the recovery from the war, and probably since the depression, the end of the depression in '33. Uh, so this takes a while to recover, um, but the American economy, as we know, is a history of resilience. Look what happened after the global financial crisis.
0: Um, Well, I was going to make the point, too, it's got enormous capacity for change and renewal. I mean, you think about its recovery from the Civil War, the Depression and Vietnam. Are you being a bit too pessimistic here, Kevin?
1: Uh, Well, I live in the United States and I actually listen to the debate. Uh, I'm back in Australia now. And when my American interlocutors, Republican and Democrat friends of mine over 20 years, who um, uh, a part of let's call it the foreign policy and national security policy machinery saying that it's become increasingly hard to forge consensus these days across the aisle on america's behavior in the world um, that is a real issue then it's not just my external analysis it's part of the internal analysis within the us itself do i think the united states can come through this domestic um, political malaise and the economic destruction which has occurred. Yes, I do, because it's a remarkably resilient country. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think a precondition is uh, that uh, we see a Democrat win this November. Um, uh, It's not that I am a a cheerleader for Joe Biden personally. I barely know the man. Uh, But he's likely to put together a mainstream, uh, competent foreign policy and national security policy team, as opposed to... Uh, frankly, the chaotic nature of the Trump administration on most foreign and national security policy questions. And that, I think, is necessary for America to rebuild its alliances abroad, rebuild its credibility in the eyes of the rest of the world, and to overcome what has been an extraordinary period where America, rather than taking the lead in the global recovery uh, from the virus, both in public health terms and economic terms, has simply been missing in action and, in fact, in, unable to contain its, the damage domestically.
0: Yeah, but people said this when Obama replaced Bush, that under the Bush administration, there was a loss of respect and credibility, the, the diminished prestige and authority, and consequently, uh, a reduced ability to lead and persuade. A lot of those... Uh, Uh, qualities uh, dogged the Obama administration. So isn't it more deep-seated and structured rather than just changing an administration to get a different outcome?
1: I think uh, your your question, Tom, understates the departure from the norm which the Trump administration has represented. I mean, you know me reasonably well. I've worked with US administrations of Republican and Democrat stripes, Obama prior to him Bush. Um, and I have friends on both sides of this equation this is such a radical departure uh, from the mainstream uh, by which I mean the treatment of alliances number one uh, number two uh, the global advocacy of protectionism as a virtue uh, and to the extent that the World Trade Organization has almost ceased functioning um, and three uh, this general view the uh, of let's call it uh, America first, which basically says to the rest of the world, we no longer see ourselves as a global leader. We are only concerned about the United States. These are such radical departures from the post-45, or shall I say post-Rooseveltian America that we've seen in that country since the early 30s. And so that's why uh, I have uh, a view that this has been such a radical departure, that we need a restabilization around a Biden presidency do i think he can do it yes i do but it's not a normal transition it's an utterly abnormal transition
0: okay back to your essay you say before the virus the idea that china and the us were destined for a new cold war that was a bit far fetched but you now argue it seems likely will have what you call Cold War 1.5. How would that be different from the US-Soviet Cold War? I mean, what would it look like?
1: Well, you're right, Tom. I mean, many people in the last, during the period of the US-China trade war of the last couple of years have said, well, we're now into a new Cold War. Uh, That's just stuff and nonsense, really. Because if you remember the Cold War, and some of us who are sufficiently from the Paleolithic period of politics, like myself, um, (laughs) can remember the Cold War. I was actually a serving diplomat during the last decade of the Cold War.
0: Kind of interesting. You were in Sweden and China, weren't you?
1: That's right. I remember dealing with the Soviet embassies in both uh, Stockholm and Beijing, where we had to mind what we were doing with the solves, as we used to call them. Now, the bottom line is, what was the Cold War about? One, mutually assured destruction in terms of the nuclear race. Two, um, zero economic engagement. Uh, Three, uh, a whole bunch of proxy wars around the world, uh, Africa, Latin America and elsewhere. Um, And on top of that, a deep ideological contest. Now, apply that to China uh, pre-COVID, uh, then, frankly, the conditions didn't all apply. Yes, some element of uh, nuclear competition, China's forced modernisation with nukes and enough second-strike capability to have, in fact, a level of mutually assured destruction. But the economic engagement between the two countries was comprehensive across all domains. No third-country proxy wars and an emerging but nascent ideological conflict between authoritarian capitalism and liberal democratic capitalism. But I think what the real danger now is, Tom, if we're looking to the future is, does the COVID crisis result in a much more accelerated economic decoupling between China and the United States? Mm. If it does, then the glue which has held together the relationship in the last several decades begins to dissipate. And therefore we begin to look at some of the conditions which existed in the previous Cold War with the Soviets And if that holds and we then move in that direction, one of the other things I've written in this article in Foreign Affairs is, let us then learn the lessons of the last Cold War with the Soviets, whereby detente created uh, a mechanism which prevented crisis from turning into catastrophe, given the near-death experience of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 63. How do we apply that logic for the future of the US-China relationship?
0: Perhaps a return to classic balance of power politics in the realist mould. Kevin Rudd, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for having
1: me, Tom, and all the best to your very intelligent listeners.
0: Kevin Rudd, former Australian Prime Minister, he's now president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. You can get his article, The Coming Post COVID Anarchy, that's from Foreign Affairs website. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, it's been 17 years since the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Australia, how could we forget? We were one of the three leading nations in the mission to topple Saddam Hussein from power. As we now know, that invasion and subsequent occupation, it's widely regarded as a strategic disaster, costing the United States and Britain, not to mention Iraq, dearly in prestige, credibility and blood and treasure. Also, upending the sectarian imbalance, enhancing Shia rule and sparking a Sunni insurgency that ultimately led to those Islamic State jihadists. It's all true. However, did you know about the most recent chapter of US engagement in Iraq? I'm not just referring to the defeat of ISIS, but also the creation of quite possibly a stable democracy in a region, remember, where both stability and democracy are hard to find. Well, so says my next guest. Linda Robinson is a senior researcher at the RAND Corporation and the author of Tell Me How This Ends, General David Petraeus and the Search for a Way Out of Iraq. Linda, welcome to ABC Radio.
2: Thank you. I'm happy to be with you.
0: Now, given all the setbacks Iraq has endured in recent decades, why are you more optimistic about Iraq's prospects than anyone had the right to expect a few years ago?
2: Well, what I did in that article was really try to take the long view as I've been going to Iraq since 2003 when I first covered the invasion as a journalist. I, um, I think that people sometimes overlook the fact that it is one of the few parliamentary uh, democracies in the region and it has had five, now six, uh, peaceful changes of government with the parliamentary system, leading to long uh, negotiations to form a government. Um, but I would I would hasten to say, uh, it is not a stable democracy. It is a fragile democracy, but it has been able to keep moving ahead uh, mm. despite a very very um severe threat from ISIS, as you mentioned, uh, but also in the face of escalating tensions between Iran and the United States, mm-hmm. which has really put a lot of pressure on Iraq. And now, of course, it's confronted with two additional things. I'm sure you'll get into them, but massive protests uh, erupted in October. Um, And that was right on my last uh, visit there. And it was people coming out in the street really wanting two things, better governance, better government services, and uh, wanting uh, Iran and the Iranian-backed militias uh, to back off because it's really it is a very nationalistic country and while they're right next door to Iran have a lot of trade and economic and religious ties they do not want to be dominated politically or militarily by Iran so all these things are working out now of course oil prices have collapsed they have some uh, COVID threat Iran next door is a terrible uh, COVID or coronavirus uh, problem so it is not without problems. Problems, but in the perspective of most uh, Americans, they hear the name, uh, the word Iraq, and to them it's literally a four-letter mm, word. Mm. They think of it as yes. a, bas- a basket case and that we've dumped blood and treasure into the place and gotten nothing out of it. So it's just trying to reset a bit.
0: Yeah. And the article to which you referred that appeared in Foreign Affairs late last year, you say Iraq's progress can be attributed in part – to the recent evolution away from that Sunni Shia sectarianism. And on this program, Linda, over the last uh, six or so years, we've had many segments dedicated to this issue, not just in Iraq, but of course in Syria and the broader Persian Gulf. But surely Sunni resentments, aren't they likely to escalate if this Shia-led regime, and remember, you mentioned it before, the Iranian-backed Shia militias, if they continue to discriminate and marginalise against Sunnis, Won't that make a bad situation, well, a potentially good situation much worse?
2: Well, there certainly is a problem, I would say, mostly because the Sunni uh, areas or the mixed areas where the brunt of the ISIS fight occurred and there was huge destruction, especially in places like Mosul, if they are not rebuilt and the rebuilding is going quite slowly, that will inflame tensions. But what has happened is the youth have really moved away from the, the Shia, Sunni, Uh, rhetoric and the demands now are much more issue based like they want a functioning government with less corruption better water and electricity there are Shia parties it is a Shia majority country Um, but they are also forming cross-sectarian coalitions. And this new prime minister, whom I know, Mustafa al-Khalimi, he is a secular and not a sectarian leader. And of course, that's always a bargaining process, but Sunnis have been part of every uh, coalition that is run in the elections. And I think we have to look at this as uh, an issue, but not the dominant issue that it once was. What people want is better uh, government now the Iranian militias. Uh, Iranian-backed militias, I should say. It's very important. Uh, the, mm. the militias are formed by Iraqis, but there uh, three of them in particular are very problematic, uh, but they do not form even the bulk of the popular mobilization forces. So it's the Iranian influence more mm. than the Shia identity that is now the critical issue.
0: My guest is Linda Robinson from the Rand Corporation. We're talking about Iraq. Uh, Just to make sure our listeners are on top of this detail, because it can be complicated. Iran's political influence in Baghdad clearly was enhanced uh, after the toppling of Saddam, a Sunni, in 2003. This just helped the Shia run the country for the first time. And uh, many people say that uh, Shia lawmakers have turned to Tehran. It's complicated. Now, Iran was the first country to come to Baghdad's aid in the war on ISIS. The U.S. has demanded that Iraq disband several Shia militias with close ties uh, to Iran. It's a legitimate request, Linda, but has Baghdad really met Washington's request?
2: Uh, Certainly not under the previous uh, prime minister, uh, um, the... Ability of the uh, Al government to take any steps was very uh, limited, and it is—it's uh, an important thing. And I would say my my way of framing this is: it has to be an Iraqi action and now there's a prime minister his first statement uh, after he was named on the 6th of May was we want a sovereign country and he's also vowed to prosecute those involved in shooting the peaceful protesters and those were the um, Iranian backed militias so Mm -hmm. there is a sign uh, that this new government will make an issue of this but the US and I know we'll get into this more but the, the US And Iran were involved in escalating uh, tensions over since last summer, almost a year now, Mm. and uh, culminating, of course, in the January 3rd strike by the U.S. that uh, killed not only the Iranian Quds Force leader Uh, Qasem Soleimani, but also the Iraqi leader of the key militia backed by Iran. And that was a real Rubicon uh, for the U.S. to take a unilateral strike on Iraqi soil against a top Iraqi official. So the key now, and that's really inflamed relations, and it's led the U.S. to threaten, uh, make a lot of threats. But I have to say, things have changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. Just in the last few days, with the, uh, with the coming of the Kadami government, the U.S. has changed its tone and its re- approach quite remarkably. When the U.S. presses and takes unilateral action, of course, that inflames Iraqi nationalism, and they support their uh, uh, right to decide their foreign relations. And as the president, Barham Saleh, says, we don't want to have a war over Iran fought on Iraq so- Iraq soil. Uh, but what is true is they fear a resurgence of ISIS. The Iraqis do want U.S. security uh, assistance to continue. Continue The competition between Iran and Iraq, it's been kind of the primary piece on the chessboard to constrain Iran. And that's really, I think, the geopolitical future of the country, is that there will be a kind of a hedging against Iranian destabilization as that Arab coalition comes back together.
0: Linda, thanks so much for being on our end today.
2: You are quite welcome.
0: Linda Robertson is a senior researcher at the Rand Corporation in Washington. Well, that's the program this week and remember if you'd like to hear back episodes of the program just go to abc.net.au rn and follow the prompts to between the lines you can hear kevin rudd's debate with john mearsheimer over china policy that was last august or several episodes on iraq's political trajectory since the war on isis began in 2014. i'm tom switzer hope you can tune in again next week